Hello and welcome to the Port Podcast. I'm Matt Willey, co-publisher and senior editor at Port Magazine. Photographer Dan Budnick has led a long and fascinating life. From spending time with Jasper Johns to covering Paris street demonstrations with Henry Cartier-Bresson. In the 1960s, he documented the American civil rights struggle, capturing the pivotal Selma to Montgomery March of 1965, a march that provided momentum for the passage of the Voting Rights Act, which outlawed the use of barriers, such as literary tests, which had been used to prevent blacks from registering to vote. When Martin Luther King delivered his most famous speech in 1963, Dan was sat behind the Baptist minister. Sixty years on, Port sat down with Dan to hear the stories behind his pictures. The dream speech was not the dream speech originally. Uh, it was just another speech. Mahalia Jackson is sitting next to Dr. King. Now, Mahalia Jackson is interesting because when he was often down and really depressed about the way things were going, he would call her up, wake her up two, three, four in the morning, I understand, and say, Mahalia, sing me a gospel song, because her father was a minister, and so she grew up in church. Soon we'll be She had a great voice, and she'd sing this gospel song, and, and Dr. King would be rejuvenated. So she's sitting next to him, and she's listening to these words, but she knows him, and she said, Martin, Martin, tell him about the dream, Martin. Tell him about the dream. <laughs> so I started getting goosebumps at that moment because I knew something was about to explode. And then he, he just pushes the paper aside, and he starts speaking from his heart. And uh, wow, what a moment to witness. I, I still have the goosebumps. You know, such an amazing speech. I still have a dream. Yes. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. Yes. I have a dream that one day yes. this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Yes. realized when he was giving the speech that all my, my colleagues, the photographer, fellow photographers, would be photographing him from logically from the front or the sides. So I decided I'd, I'd do something different. I decided to be behind him, and I couldn't even see him during the speech. I could hear him, but I couldn't see him until the very end when the crowd parted a little bit and his arm went in the air. Immediately, the first picture I, I could see that no one else could see was someone giving him a giant bear hug and and you couldn't put a piece of paper between their bodies. That's how tight it was. And this white fellow on my level with horn-rimmed glasses kept yelling out Dr. King's name. He was so moved by the speech that he wanted to shake his hand. And, and King is a, a paralyzed sardine, not, not just a sardine, but a paralyzed one. His expression is, he's just incredulous that this man would even think of shaking his hand. But the fellow was so persistent that King started smiling a little bit and then squirmed around, squirreled around, and freed up an, an arm. And, and they, then when they finally linked their hands, it was the brotherhood clasp, and it was perfect. And I was right there, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's moments like that that, you, as a photojournalist, you live for. Freedom and justice, I have a dream. That my four little children 
will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I always have this little sign next to me. It's by Dr. King in 1963, and he said, we will have to repent in this generation not merely for the hateful words and actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. Voting is not enough. We really have to get more active. Dr. King has shown us the way, as many other leaders have too. It's interesting because it starts in this country with Henry David Thoreau's book, Civil Disobedience, and, and Gandhi, as a young lawyer in, in South Africa, picks it up, embraces it, but doesn't do anything in South Africa, brings it back to India, and you know, the rest was history. So King was fascinated with that, how to make it effective. So when Selma Montgomery started, Dr. King thought it was a mistake that he was not, you know, get the action they wanted. You know, it was a five-day march from Selma to Montgomery. It was 54 miles. Well, the march actually was inspired tragically by the death of Jimmy Lee Jackson, who was brutally, stupidly murdered by a state trooper in Marion. And a state trooper was beating his grandfather and grandmother, and he threw himself between the club and the loved ones. He, the trooper was so irritated by that gesture that he pulled out a SIRS revolver and shot Jimmy Lee Jackson in the stomach, and, and he died three days later. And... Uh, no one in Congress talked about it. It was just yet another black man being killed. It was a brutal, senseless killing. Ten days later, Dr. King had called for a minister's march in Selma, and, and ministers came from all over the country. It was quite impressive. And uh, Reverend James Reeb was a white Unitarian minister from Boston. He came, and within less than 24 hours of arriving in Selma, he was bludgeoned with a baseball bat, I believe. So he was refused at, at the local hospital because he was with the, the blacks, and uh, they drove him around for about three hours, and he was, in the meantime, he was hemorrhaging, and uh, he died three days later. Of course, everyone in Congress spoke about his death. So the SNCC leaders in Alabama decided they would, uh, they would take his body and deposit it on the steps of the state capitol, which I'm glad they never did, but uh, that was how they felt. We all marched to the courthouse of Montgomery for voting rights, and then uh, Dr. King got on a plane to give a speech in Chicago because he, 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 he was the principal fundraiser for this whole thing. You know, people wanted him. They didn't want anyone else. So he was going to give a speech in Chicago and then come immediately back. That's what he did. But uh, while he was en route to Chicago, the uh, SNCC leaders in Alabama, James Foreman and Willie Ricks, decided they would utilize all the students who had come down so they uh, announced they were going to have a march into downtown Montgomery. And they picked the beginning of rush hour to do this sit-down in downtown Montgomery, and they paralyzed traffic. So for the first time they, that, that, during that period, they called out the sheriff's posse. And these fellows had license to kill their own horses with you know, big clubs. And there was a lot of bloodletting, but fortunately no one was killed. King never gave a speech. He just turned around and came back. I knew they were going to have a big gathering at the Beulah Baptist Church in Montgomery, and I, I went there. I picked my spot because I knew it would fill up, and there were 1,800 bodies in this small church. It was quite, quite impressive. Dr. King finally came, uh, so then, then they started speaking, and James Foreman got up. He was a very fiery speaker, and he ended his 
very passionate speech, and you know, I, I had to agree with a lot of what he said. Uh, he ended by saying, if they're not going to let us sit at the table of democracy, and then he used the, the F word in church, and he said, we're going to knock those legs off, and, uh, and he brought down the house. I mean, all these students went ballistic. They, they heard the F word in church, and, and, and all the energy from this youthful audience went into James Foreman. As historians have stated that when Foreman gave that speech, that was the true beginning of black power. I looked at Dr. King, and, and my, my eyes said, no, what are you going to do now? It's a high-stakes poker game, and you have no cards. And uh, he knew that. But he never gave up. He just stayed with it. He didn't let go of it. And he had nothing, really, that night going for him until uh, King jumps up. He's elated. Suddenly, in this poker game, someone's giving him maybe four aces, and he interrupts whoever's speaking. and says, I have a very important announcement to make. And he said, federal district court judge Frank Johnson Jr., who's a white judge in, in Montgomery, who had been denying a permit to march from Selma to Montgomery. But when he saw the carnage that afternoon, he realized that there would be a bloody, bloody finale. He issued this, this permit, and Dr. King was able to say, we're marching, and, and all the energy went back into Dr. King. Yeah, no, it was Dr. King's greatest achievement. To pull that off when he did was amazing. And less than a week earlier, he, he, was, he was like dead in the water because the younger leaders were uh, really pushing for confrontation. It had to change, and I think the Selma Montgomery period was really the, uh, the moment of, of change. When I was standing next to Dr. King, we've been talking, and yeah, they were there at the Montgomery Municipal Airport. That was on the 24th, the day before the final day into Montgomery. They were waiting for Harry Belafonte to show up with a plane load of celebrities. And then I realized in this lull, when it was announced the plane was going to be a half hour late, the Kings had downtime for a half hour. There was, they couldn't leave and come back. It didn't make sense. So they just stood there, and they were holding hands like young lovers. And, and I argued with my conscience for about two or three minutes, and I said, finally, what's well, a public place and space, and it's a beautiful thing. I want to share it with, with people. So to take the photograph, I had to leave Dr. King's side, and uh, I had to be frontal. And I had to clear, there was a railing around it, and I didn't want the railing in the picture, so if you look at the photograph, it's very tight under their arms. I didn't know how they would react, and Dr. King started pulling away, you know, doing a guy thing, and then Mrs. King just pulled him right back again, and I realized I had my first insight into how wonderful and powerful she was as a woman, and uh, King just surrendered. You know, his expression is one of resignation. I've had very strange luck of trying to get a book published, and I've been working on it for five years, and all these enthusiastic publishers uh, left, sort of left me high and dry. And, uh, but it'll happen probably by next uh, spring. The publishing house is called Trolley, and I don't know if you ever knew Gigi, but he was, he was an amazing guy, because he, he never had enough money to rent, uh, say, space at the Frankfurt Book Fair, places like that, so he would take a shopping cart. He would go, go around with his books in the shopping cart. <laughs> Wonderful vision. He loved picture books. He just loved photo books. So we talked about the possibility of doing, doing a civil rights book, and now it's happening. Yeah. 
I have a very low profile, and I keep it that way, because I remember reading Carti Brissone in his book, The Decisive Moment, that a photographer should be anonymous. And I believed that for years and, and practiced it until I realized at one point that I was a great success, and Carti Brissone was a terrible failure at it, you know, because he was so famous. Oh.